you're here. Uh, we're going to do uh, something a little different. I usually don't divide the text this way, but we're going to look at 11 through 26, but I want to do kind of a two-part series on that text. There is sufficient connective tissue between the thought unit in 11 through 26 where I felt like um, it would do it greater justice to do two parts on the passage than just do separations of that text, all right? And so um, here's kind of my um, vision or um, plan for the next couple weeks is that we are going to look at how the Bible is going to talk about eyesight, um, vision, um, blindness. Um, Jesus is going to say in verse 17, um, uh, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? Having eyes, but not seeing. And, and then we get a story of a blind guy, and we get a story of, of people that act blind. And so here's one thing. It's kind of a precedent and an overarching thing for the next couple weeks. Vision requires light. Vision requires light. The most blind people in the world are those that claim to see and yet somehow claim to see without Jesus, who is the light of the world. And in our context, we could talk about Pharisees in the text, Muslims, uh, our hippies here in Colorado that are popping mushrooms and going out on a spirit quest, chasing chickens, right? We could talk about the, the woke, that those that most claim to be awake are actually those that are most asleep on Jesus, and so um, my argument is going to be is that vision requires light and in particularly the light of the world, Jesus. And we in the church ourselves have to be um, sensitive to our own blindness because God diagnosed his people Israel in the Old Testament in Isaiah 29.10 saying that the leaders and those with vision and, and the seers could not see and without vision, people perish. And so, um, prophecy, uh, put, put it to you like this. Prophecy, primarily and essentially, in the Bible, is not about telling the future with like a crystal ball. Are you tracking? Prophecy, I know that's how we begin to think, because we take pagan ideas about prophecy, and we import them into the scripture. Prophecy is not primarily in essentially telling the future, though it can have that element to it. It is essentially seeing things as they truly are, here and now. Who is God? What is sin? And how are things? As difficult as it is to see the future, it is equally a challenge to see our present days accurately or clearly. It's hard to get to the bottom of things of what are we really, how do we discern the times? We can see the skies and tell that the weather is changing, but we can't, we can't see the hearts and the lives of what's going on morally and discern what God is doing or where we're at. And so prophecy is getting down to the bottom of how things rightly are. It is clear eyes with sober judgment. It is here. It is discerning. And that not only has an effect on what God is doing here and now, but that is anticipating forthtelling what God is going to do. Here's the thing about blindness. Romans 1 is going to describe sin as something that darkens. 
people do not primarily disbelieve the gospel because of intellectual problems. They disbelieve the gospel because sin has darkened the eyes of their understanding and hardened their hearts. The primary problem is not intellectual, it is spiritual. Have you ever realized that the Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness? It's a place of darkness for all that that means. So here's the thing. We, the human race has a blindness problem. The human race. It, it does not care about the melanin in your skin, what color you are, your education level. It doesn't care where you grew up. Across the board, the human race has a blindness malady. Now let me, let me back up and I'll give you a little bit of example just to lead in here. Wives, agree with me or disagree? We have selective sight. Amen? We got a selective sight. Ladies, agree with me or disagree with me here? Your husband, when you send him into your kitchen where he lives, and you ask for a particular dish or pot or thing that you needed to make rice for the taco fiesta that is happening as soon as possible, all right? Can't find the dish. It's just not in there. But your husband... If an elk is 400 yards away, that baby is camouflaged into the earth. But all of a sudden, he can find Waldo, all right? Right? We got a bit of selective sight. And we could get into our kids. Anybody ever asked your kids to find their shoes? And just was like, are we for real? Two hours later, they're just staring up. It's like, I don't think I have shoes. Never happened. And I, I don't want to leave the ladies without also maybe considering. My wife, uh, one of the things that we fight about almost the most is I will be driving and I cannot handle the, oh my God, like gasp of, do you see that car four days ahead of us hitting their brakes? Yes, I can see that. I have two days before I have to hit my brakes, right? What's ironic about that is that she is also far more than I ever have, backed that car smooth into a snowbank and ripped off the bumper, all right? It's like, hey, did you see those, I don't know, metal objects that you ran smooth over? And you know what the response to that is? It is not an earth-stopping gasp. It's a, oops, right? All of us, in, for different reasons in different situations, have selective sight where we struggle to see that which is right in front of us. Right? And it's almost like a threat that parents have to do with kids. You send them in there to search for the shoes. At some point, you come in and say, I promise you, if I come in that room and I find those shoes, like, this, this conversation's changing. Right? You almost got to fire a warning shot about, get serious about seeing. Get serious about finding Get serious about searching because we got a problem with seeing things that are right in front of us. Here's what the text is going on. Maybe might get to three verses today, but I think there's a lot here that's going to set the precedent for the remaining verses in this two-part series. The problem with the Pharisees, they can't see God right in front of them. They can't see God right in front of them. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. We're going to pray. And we're going to get into God's word and we're going to see 
um, their blindness and hope and pray and beg that it won't be us. Okay? So can we pray and just ask for God to reveal more than words on a page, reveal himself. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. We praise you because you have revealed yourself through all of creation and your invisible attributes are clearly perceived through the things that you have made. No human being is without excuse because you have shown yourself all through creation. You have furthermore displayed yourself in the Holy Spirit through your church and you have given the earth, your people, that we might show forth your, through our good works your glory in person and attributes. Father, even beyond that, even though we don't deserve this, you have given us your word. Eternal, unchangeable, perfect. You've given us a revelation of yourself. God, you have given signs throughout the ages of miracles, of acts of righteousness, of changed lives throughout church history. And so, God, the witnesses are myriad. Help us, God, to zoom in today and to understand this text. God, we come acknowledging our own propensity towards blindness, and we ask for you to illumine our hearts and minds that we might understand this. Because, God, without your help, we, we will find an excuse to coddle our sin and to not believe. And so, God, we need your help in fresh and new ways. God, come be the pastor and the teacher here. Um, help us even take a couple things away. And, God, build this church that it might, um, it might be your witness here and now. Help us to see things clearly and soberly. God, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 11. The Pharisees. Now, uh, I have already taught you who this group is uh, in previous sermons. If you want to go back online and get those sermons, I know Ty is working on getting all that uploaded. Um, you could get that. I kind of give a breakdown of where they came from. In sum, they are the leading religious party of their day. Regi leading religious party. They came and began to argue. Now push pause because we just had earlier in chapter 8 the context of a bunch of Gentiles coming to Jesus and begging. And so there is a contrast happening here in the text. Pagans are coming to Jesus and begging and church folk are coming to Jesus making demands. That's the context of where we're coming. They began to argue with him and seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Began to argue. Now, this demand a sign in their time, the Pharisees had invented extra biblical criteria by determining whether a miracle was legitimate. And so one of the things that they said was, um, even the demonic can accomplish miracles on earth so they are demanding signs in the heavens. This would um, be similar to Jesus at his baptism where the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is a sign in heaven. Um, Joshua um, being used of God um, to still the son was a sign in heaven. And what they said was God alone could do signs in heaven. The demonic who were cast to earth would do signs on earth. So this would be a parallel for some of you that know the left side of the Bible. Pharaoh's magicians were able to imitate some of the 
abilities that God did through Moses. And they would say, this is a demonic sign of earth. And what we want from you, Jesus, is something in the heavens. Now, here's where a lot of people make um, distinctions like the Pharisees just did, thinking that these distinctions are a proper biblical understanding. I would argue they're not biblical enough. Because my Bible says, my God is the Lord of heaven and earth. Like he's, he's got the material universe and every physical molecule answers to Him. And the heavens and the heavensly all answer to Him as well. So uh, without deviating too much, this is just the context of what this question is asking of Jesus. But I would argue at the base of their presupposition, they're not biblical enough. Their view of God is too small. Now, they came to him, and it says to argue, demanding a sign. Now, here's the thing. Their demand of God excludes the one thing that Jesus says you have to have in order to get him. And that is humility. They come to him like some students do substitute teachers firing questions across their bow, not to get an answer, but to show how they're wrong. You ever been in one of these classes before? Where someone asks a question, and the question is not a question, it's a statement with a question mark at the end of it. And it's meant to show how stupid the teacher is. Right? Like, they are not coming in sincerity to learn. They're coming to pick a fight. And it says that they demand a sign, but they, they're not coming in humility. Some of us think that we can learn about God or grow in God without a change of heart. Some of us think that we can learn about God or grow in God without a change of heart. Jesus understands this. He, I, I would even make this bold claim. Even if he does a sign here, no sign that he would have done would have changed their hearts and minds. Do you realize that already in the text, when he has done signs and miracles, they have ascribed it to the demonic? Like anything that, they, that he does, they're just looking for a reason to not believe. You have to understand that the Bible is not saying that our primary problem is intellectual. The primary problem is we are dead in trespasses and sins. And we have hearts filled with alternate beliefs about how the world works. Those alternate beliefs, those are just another way of saying doubts. Doubts are nothing but alternate beliefs. And our hearts are filled with them because it coddles our sin that we love so dear. You think we're going to surrender those things? Those things protect my sin. It justifies my sin. So I, I get this. I, I argue this. You, you don't have to believe this. This is my personal uh, conviction. The greatest heresy in America is not back in the early centuries of the Trinity or substitutionary atonement or all these other things. 
our greatest heresy in America today is that we, we underestimate or do not believe in the power of sin. That's why we don't preach it from pulpits. Jesus, we underestimate the power of sin and we are ignorant of how it feeds our doubt. Let me put it to you like this. Okay, so there's a story in the Bible about uh, a rich man and Nicodemus. Or sorry, rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man had a rich life his, his whole life and the poor man fed from his scraps. They both go into eternity. And it's actually a, a story, not a parable, but a historical account of two people. One going to Abraham's bosom, which is a picture of heaven, and one going into hell. And the rich man who is in hell begins to beg for someone to be sent back to his brothers. He says, send somebody back so that they don't come into this place of torment that I've come into. And the response to him is, they have the law and the prophets. And if they will not believe Moses, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. There is no amount of miracle that is stronger than the witness of the scriptures they already have. And if they are already looking at the law and the prophets explaining that away, what is one more miracle except for another excuse not to believe? Do you understand how the Bible paints our situation in sin? You could have all of the neon signs of Vegas lit up, shining all the way to outer space, but to a blind man, they will read none of it and gain nothing by it. That's the Bible's diagnosis of our blindness. The problem that the Pharisees have and the problem you have is not an insufficient number of signs. It's not an insufficient number of signs. The problem we have is humility to read them. Here's what they came to do. They came and began, therefore, because of this condition, to argue. Uh, which seems like a dispute, maybe some of your translations, that seems a bit weak for me in the Greek. This has a bit of uh, a tense to it, that there's, there's hostility they came to bully Jesus. They came to harass him. Um, in modern language, we call it, on, if you're online, it's called trolling people. Right? They're going to try to lawyer their way out of not believing. And what I love about Jesus in this text is Jesus is being provoked by their sin, but does not sin in return. Jesus is being provoked by their sin, but he does not sin in return. I, I, I promise you, every one of us have been here before. Someone has done us dirty. Someone has said something to us. Someone has wronged us. And in that moment, we feel 1,000% justified in doing whatever we want back to them. Anybody? We fight fire with fire around here, baby. Right? You, you wrong me the right way, and I, like, I, I'll run rampshot off everything I know about the Bible, and I'll give you a dose of your own medicine. How many of us in here are this way? Someone wrongs us, 
And now I've said in counseling session after counseling session, and all the person wants to talk about is what they did to me that caused me to do this to them. I'm justified. I'm justified. How about this? Not every email has to be responded to. Let that breathe for a second. Not every, here's the thing. Type up your response and delete it. Not, um, not every social media accusation or post needs your expertise uh, engaged with it. Not every political debate needs you to weigh in. Not every fool who picks a fight with you should you answer. Now listen, I, I want to balance this because here's the truth. Paul, d- Jesus is going to debate. He's going to argue. He's going to do that righteously. He's going to speak truth. I argue about that all the time. You've got to open your mouth. You've got to get engaged. I believe that. Paul does that. The apostles do that. What, but what we also have to notice is here in this passage, they don't do it every time. They don't do it every time. They don't die on every hill. Um, let, me give you, let me give you a really good tip on how to get divorced. Okay, um, here's a really good tip on how to get divorced. Every single fight your spouse picks, turn that baby up a notch. Right? Every fight. They come to you, wanting to, they just kind of like poke, prod, whatever volume they bring that thing up, you just, you just uh, never back down. Never say no to a fight that your spouse picks. Um, they, uh, your spouse may have never, had not recently eaten and they're just hangry. They may not have slept. They may be having a terrible day, but that's, that's their problem and probably going to make them weak so you can definitely win the argument. Like never walk away. They started it, by golly, you finish it. Um, always, always escalate a fight your spouse starts. Escalate it. They, they, they start out with a knife fight. You take that baby to a nuclear arms race. Right? How about this? Anybody heard this thing? I know what you said was right, but I don't like your tone. Hey, turn that tone even worse. Drop six octaves. Right? Come on now. This is a great tip for ruining any relationship you're in. Not just your marriages, your friendships, your business relationships. Every fight. How about this? Can we just be real? All of us have started fights with people we love that we later regretted starting. Right? Like, this is yes, this is no. All right? Hey, we're not in the charismatic church, but you can move your neck. All right? All of us have started fights that about five minutes into it, we want to crawfish and be like, you know what, on second thought, right? And then you get going and you don't know how to back it down, right? And, and so sometimes the most love our spouses can give us is we pick some stupid fight we shouldn't have picked and they just be like, yo, I'm just not going to do that right now. 
sometimes one of us has to be mature enough to say, you know what, I think you're just hungry or you haven't slept. Or if we just give, let's just sleep on that overnight. I think tomorrow, I think we'd just be a better day for that. Do you hear what I'm saying? You love your spouse by not engaging in every single fight that they pick. Amen or oh me. Okay. Here's, I, so here's the argument. There are times where you absolutely have to engage. You've got to debate. You've got to argue. You've got to stand your ground. You've got to die on the hill. You know I've preached that. This is much harder for me personally. And for some of us in here that are combative, this is just difficult. The, the thing that we have to learn from Jesus here, who is going to walk away, is that there is a time in which God is going to call you to do nothing. And that's the most absolutely righteous thing that you could do. He's going to call you to walk away. Is that, for some of you in here, that are more fight than flight, because my flight people, whenever I say you've got to stand your ground and stuff, I've got to challenge you. For my people that everything's a fight, I've got to teach you the same time to follow the Holy Spirit when he says to walk away. Amen? If Jesus, in this scenario, does it, then there's precedent that God the Holy Spirit, who is teaching us to be like Jesus, will call us to do the same thing. Here's, I, I just love this. First uh, Samuel chapter 19, in, in the Bible, um, Saul is a uh, leader of Israel just like these Pharisees. And he is, demon, he is a demonic, uh, oppressed at the very least, person that he kept getting these demonic fits that he would go into and he would just wig out and he, would, he was a terrible leader. And um, he employs a guy named David who had proved himself against Goliath to come into his, um, basically, throne room. Because when David plays worship music, the demonic flees. I love that. That the demonic cannot stand in the presence of praise. Sometimes when you're going through dark stuff, the greatest thing you can do is sing a hymn. So he's in there playing worship music on the electric guitar, uh, the harp, okay? He's on the harp. And I don't know if there's an interlude or something that happens. The, the demonic comes on Saul... The brother picks up a spear, throws it at David. And the Bible says that the spear stuck in the wall next to David. Now, heres I don't know what happened there. I don't know if David went full matrix and dodged that baby. I don't know, I don't know what went on. He misses, though. And David, let's be clear about it, is not the dude to miss. Right? That brother is a sharpshooter. You do not play David at dodgeball. He already proved against a giant that he can hit his target, right? You don't miss David. David got skills. Sticks in the wall behind him. And if he already slayed a giant who's like a sinner, what is Saul? Like a power forward? Small forward. He got Saul. Okay? Sticks in the wall. Now David has an option. I can grab the spear... And I can throw it back. And I can strike God's anointed. Or I can walk away. For many of us in here, grabbing the spear out of the wall and throwing it back takes less strength than walking away. I 
I would say for most of us in here, the kind of courage and strength and boldness to have something hurled at you, we're going to go full Second Amendment, right? And we're going to let them have it. That takes less strength than to do what David does. And he walked away. He did exactly what Jesus does. He walked away. I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. It's something I've been meditating on um, for the last year. Meekness. The definition of meekness. Meekness is not the absence of a sword. Meekness is not the absence of the sword. It's the wisdom and strength to know when to keep it in its sheath. Meekness is not the absence of a sword. It's the wisdom and strength to know when to keep it in its sheath. Here's the deal. Contentious people are always going to be in your life. The Proverbs talk about these people. The New Testament teaches about how they divide the church. Contentious people in Proverbs are people that are constantly stoking a fire with gossip. They're constantly looking for a fight. They don't care about truth. They care about drama. And you're going to have these people in your life from now until Jesus returns. How are you going to handle contentious people who start fights with you that it would be unholy for you to participate in them? Here's one thing about Jesus that I think is really telling. Verse 12, they, they sent a sign to test him. Verse 12, he sighed, look at your Bible, he sighed deeply in his spirit and says, why? 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 Does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them. That's it. He let, he let leaves. He got into the boat again and he went to the other side. Jesus leaves. He asks a good, piercing question, why? And he leaves. Right before that, just so they're, they're clear, he does the deep sigh. Uh, sometimes your spouse and you will be in a tense situation. And one of you will be doing everything you can to keep it all bottled in. And they cannot help but deep sigh and just go. And the other spouse will go, did you just deep sigh? Right? I heard that deep sigh. Yeah, you heard it from the pit of my soul. That's where it's coming from. This deep sigh is the same deep sigh that he did in chapter 7 with the deaf mute man. You remember that? That whenever he was non-verbally communicating to somebody that couldn't hear, he touched the tongue, looked at the brokenness of the mute man, looked at his brokenness, and deep sighed. We said that Jesus was communicating to him that his heart was broken over the brokenness that sin has brought in the world. The physical malady that this man has, has come as an effect of sin being in the world. And that bothers Jesus enough that he deep sighed so the man would know he had a heart that was broken for his brokenness. This word for deep sigh is a compound verb of that same word 
but it is intensified. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus looks at the brokenness of the Pharisees' hearts that are so hard and are constantly trying to argue their way out of this thing that won't be humble, that won't change, that won't repent, and it's much worse than being deaf. It's worse than being a mute. It's the ultimate of brokenness in the universe. Any deep, complex size. Now, let me anthropomorphically put this into our terms. This is where we start talking about, brother, you just get on my last nerve. Right? You are wearing me out. In Amos chapter 5, God calls, turns to his people who have become so unjust and so off mission and off point, who are ignoring his word. And he calls, he says, stop singing songs because I ain't listening to them. Turn off the show. You're wearing me out. Because you've got a lot of religious activities, Pharisees, but your hearts are far from me. He deep sighs. And I don't know what deep, what the opposite of deep sighing is on the spectrum of human emotion. If bringing God's heart a deep sigh at my hardness is over here, whatever the opposite end of the spectrum, pure joy, happiness, blessedness, goodness, if that's on the other side, family, I don't know about you, but I want to be over here. Amen? I don't want to be constantly arguing with God to defend my hard heart and my doubts and my unbelief, making demands of him, trying to explain away why the, I'm the exception of the rule. If that is what is wearing him out and gets on his nerve, whatever brings him joy, if that's obedience, if that's sacrifice, if that's humility, family, this is where I want to be over here, right? Says that he... He encountered them and he deep sighed. He was exasperated. He was sick and tired. Genesis 6-3, God has already prophesied that he's not going to strive with man forever. It's a nonverbal. It's a, it's, a, it's a clue. And then he responds with this incredibly piercing question, why? Why? What do you think that sign is going to do for you that the scriptures haven't already done? Matthew 16, 4 talks about this account and says that he actually says the only sign you get is the sign of Jonah, which is a picture of three days and three nights in the belly of the well, the the picture of the gospel, that Jesus is going to die so that others may live. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again. He says, which is unbelievably ironic, right? That the people that spent their whole life dedicated to studying the scripture, he says, the only witness that I'm going to give you is scripture itself. That's some next level judo, right? It's like you you think you need signs. What you really need is the Bible that you study, but you don't understand. He asks a question, why? I mean, I could go right now into apologetics about uh, different arguments, the principle of the first cause, apologetics for the existence of God. We could get into the presuppositional apologetics. Uh, We could get into even using... 
the history of how God has changed people's lives. I can give you all the signs and all the signposts you could ever want. But why would you think that those would help you any more than what God has already given you? Do you not know that the scripture says you swim in a world created by God and his fingerprints are all over it? You have never known an existence that wasn't saturated with his witness. What's one more thing to you if you haven't already believed what he's shown you? Savvy parents get this. Sometimes kids come and they ask for things. They want to borrow your knife. To, and we, here's one follow-up question. Why? Right? I'm not in this place yet, but it's coming, and I know you understand it. Some point, a kid is going to come to you and ask, can I borrow the car? And the next question is, why? Right? Or the next answer is just no. Right? It's just a default um, answer there. Savvy parents understand that I need more information in order to know which, are you going to go out and commit vehicular manslaughter with this car? Right? Is it a party bus for you and your friends going up to Vallecito? Right? Like, I need, I need more information. Next level parents already know why they need the knife. Right? Next level parents already know why they're asking for the car. And they ask the question, why do you want the car? Because they know the kid is going to use it for something that the parent already said, I'm not giving it to you for that. Kids are, oh, it ain't for, it's just for me and my friends. Right? A next level parent asks the question, why? Because they want their kid to be honest about their intentions and not be shady trying to sneak one over on their parents. Right? Like, why are you doing that? Kids, let me just tell you this. Every time your parents ask the question why, it's not always because they don't know the answer. Sometimes it's to help you know your own stinking heart and whether what you're doing it's scandalous. Are you tracking? Jesus does this with your heart. What is it that you currently don't have from God that if you had it, you would say, I would believe God if I only had that thing. Now I'm going to come to this question and say, why is that the thing that you need in order to believe? Because in our hearts, I can come right back after that and say, that thing has become for you an idol. And even if you had it, it might just lead you further from God and not to him. At, let me finish here. At his first coming, he stood trial before the world. It says that they came here to test him. And he has come and stood trial before them. The book of Mark is about to make a cataclysmic shift here in chapter 8. We're going to hit the midpoint and what I would say is the central thesis of the book. And he just ain't going to play with these Pharisees no more. They have come to a point at which he is not going to entertain their hot mess. And he's just going to walk away. At his first coming, Jesus was put on trial before the world. At his second coming, the world will be put on trial before him. Here's maybe the worst thing. The worst thing we could do is to love sin and defend it with well-planned arguments and excuses 
for what God didn't give us in order to believe. Instead of seeing what he did give us in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. We are either standing before God saying, look at all the things you didn't give me. Look at the parents you gave me, the friends you gave me, the money you gave me, the brain you gave me, the education. Look at all the things you didn't give me, God, and make well-planned out excuses and demands and arguments based on what he didn't give. Or we can, like the people that came in this chapter early, come and beg understanding what he did give, and that is himself in Jesus. Which, if you will get it, church, any of my friends here that don't believe the gospel, if you will get Jesus, you will come to find that he is more than enough. He's just more than enough. And the things of earth will slowly fade. All those things you thought you needed, you start to see how trivial and small they are. So the worst thing is that we just keep making these arguments and these defenses based on all the stuff God hasn't given us. Or we can shift and in humility repent and turn and give thanks for what he did give in the cross of Jesus who died for our sins. The worst part is choosing our sin and arrogance in such a way that we push God to a point like Romans 1 says where he leaves us in our hard hearts to the choice that we have made. And we die in our sins and we miss out on life eternal. Can I pray for you? Maybe right now, um, as we've gotten in this text, you would say that you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one has given has been given to us. And you've made up a bunch of excuses of why you can't believe, but the Holy Spirit, even right now, is tugging at your heart to believe and to surrender and to turn. I just want to invite you in all humility to surrender yourself to Christ. To call upon the name of the Lord. The meek and lowly, He does not turn away. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. And maybe right now in your heart you do that. Church, if you're in here, would you pray for any lost person that's in here that maybe doesn't know you? Doesn't know the Lord. Would you pray for him? Church in here, there's one thing that <clears throat> I want you to search your own heart. Are you a contentious person who can never back down who can never leave the spear in the wall. Who can never walk away. If we asked your spouse, if we asked your friends, your co-workers, do you stir up strife and spread gossip? Or do you share peace? that's you in here just like it has been for me this week would you trust grace and just repent right now
Christian, would you repent? Or are you going to go with the Pharisees here and make an argument to protect your hard heart? Cause the Lord a deep sigh. I'm going to pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know you are invading here by saving sinners who are lost. And so if there's even one in here that doesn't know you, Holy Spirit, come and so convict them that they cannot leave this room until they get right with you. God, if um, anyone in the hearing my voice, whether online or here, can look at their own track record, their own pattern of behavior, and say, I have, I have been a gossip, a strife, a person of strife, a contentious person, Somebody who pours gasoline instead of puts out fires. If that's in my brothers and sisters here, would you, God, give them the grace to repent right now? To turn, God, maybe even apologize to some people that they need to apologize to. Reconcile with some people they need to reconcile to. God, would you come and do gospel work in us? Would you break open the hard hearts and make them hearts of flesh again that are sensitive? God, would you give us the kind of meekness and courage that as the Holy Spirit tells us to walk away, we walk away. God, I pray this for my brothers and sisters that we might imitate Jesus and thus bring you much glory. Pray that in the strong name of Jesus, everyone said. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us?